This is Prairie Miller, and on the show. as recharging electric batteries. Did you know that all the way from the mines of Paradox Valley, Colorado, comes a miracle elixir of the 20th century? Radium. Good for what else, you ladies? Good for what else? And that was a scene from Radium Girls, the historical drama detailing the horrific and deplorable radioactive poisoning of factory women in Jersey working with that dangerous substance just about a century ago, sickened and killed and even in death still glowing in their graves forever from the radium. And their long struggle back then went beyond the personal to sue the United States radium factories with that impact resulting in occupational labor laws, a strengthening of the labor rights movement in this country, and established as a result of the Radium Girls case, industrial safety standards, and the right of individual workers to sue for damages from corporations due to labor abuse. And coming up is an interview with the co-director of Radium Girls, filmmaker Lydia Pilcher. But right now, the movie speaks to the larger question of putting your faith in others in cult settings like this. The Austin Film Festival and a conversation with Ed Begley Jr. in the mockumentary premiere there, taking on that questionable cult guru culture life coaching in Reboot Camp, and Begley's role as a dissenter against all of the above. Among other topics on the table were Begley's junior unusual childhood, growing up with his screen legend father, Ed Begley, who himself ran away as a child to join the circus, what he's been up to in that Breaking Bad sequel, Better Call Saul, his own off-screen dedicated environmental activism against oil pipelines, pollution, and the fires out in his L.A. hometown. Here's the conversation with Ed Begley, but first, back in the last century, before the success of shows like Saturday Night Live, weirdly satirical comedy sketches turned up in movies, and one of the most popular was Amazon Women on the Moon, directed by John Landis and featuring the comic interlude Son of the Invisible Man, starring Ed Begley Jr. as well, a guy who believes he's invisible but isn't, cavorting all over the place stark naked. But since this is radio, we don't have to worry showing that. So here goes. Then our interview with Ed Begley Jr., I don't want to be disturbed. Griffin, it's me, Trent. Trent, I've been waiting for you. Come in. Ah, Griffin. I came as soon as I received your cable. Good God, man. What happened? I've done it, Trent. At long last, I've done it. I finally duplicated my father's formula for invisibility. After five years of injecting myself with every chemical known to man. But, Griffin... The invisibility formula turned your father into a raving lunatic. That's right, top the old man. I've been on the stuff for over a week now, and I'm still perfectly sane. <laughs> yes, I'll rule the world with my secret. Yes, and I'll need you, Ted. I must have a visible partner. <laughs> I can tell by your stunned expression that you're pretty impressed. <laughs> Look, Ma. No hands. (laughs) 
I haven't come up with a reagent to make myself visible again. But what's the rush? I'm having a ball. Watch me closely. Whee! Ever see a shirt? Make a phone call. <laughs> Ooh. Pretty scary, huh? Ooh. Wait till you see this. <laughs> uh, no, Griffin, you don't have to go all the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just listen for the sound of my voice. And you'll know where I am at all times. <laughs> Come on, let's have some wild spiffing. Being invisible is the best. <laughs> some help. I'll watch him here. Oh, my. Now, how did that happen? Must be a ghost in here. This is unreal. I'm terribly sorry. Officer, take it easy with him. He's not really dangerous. Come along quietly then, Gov. You'll have to find me first. <laughs> come along. Come on, let's cover this one up. Come on. I'm in case of... Don't touch me there. <laughs> Salmo! me yesterday. I had a, got the wrong day somehow. Thank you, Barry. Okay. Sounds good. What can you say about the Austin Film Festival and your film to have its premiere there? I'm so grateful that they accepted the movie. It's a wonderful, wonderful festival. I love the town of Austin. Great music, great food, great people. I did a play there at St. Edward's University years ago, a play about my dear friend Cesar Chavez. Now, there's a leader that you wanted to listen to. There's no cult about it. He was helping people who needed the most help. People, farm workers out there in the fields picking our food in the hot sun and the freezing cold weather. Uh, you know, uh, just an amazing man, Cesar Chavez. So I brought that play to the wonderful town of Austin. So I have a, a soft place in my heart forever for Austin. What was it about Reboot Camp that drew you in? It was David Lipper. He's a friend of mine and a friend of my wife, Rochelle. So was a twofer. I got to work with him, who I've never worked with before, and I admire him and wanted to do something with him. And I get a chance to work with Rochelle, which is always a treat. Now, your distinct role in the story is as the dissenter. What can you say about that, and perhaps as an expression of your feelings about groups like this in real life? Yeah, I'm very cautious about groups like that and gurus in general and things like that, but there's certainly some leaders out there, spiritually and otherwise, that people are help other people, motivational speakers and motivational thinkers and people of action. I And there's a value in some cases with that, but there's also some people out there that, uh, you know, have compromised integrity and to do things that are more self-serving than helping others. So I, I'm cautious about such matters in my personal life. Any thoughts about what this mockumentary may be saying about the cult mentality or herd mentality as an issue in the larger U.S. culture? Yeah, I hope it gives everybody who watches it some entertainment first and foremost, but also a, a word of caution about such things. Go in carefully and make sure, again, there are people who help others. I, I'm not saying there aren't, and there are groups, people who gather together of the like mind and that can be wonderful, but then there is the issue of cults and something to be avoided at all costs, I think, that can be quite damaging in the worst way with British Guyana and what have you in Jonestown. That's kind of worst-case scenario, but there's many others of varying degree of difficulty and, and real uh, 
you know, some of them can be, uh, you know, life-threatening, of course. So you, you want to be very cautious and move forward and turn a lot of personal matters over to someone like that. Now, a statement is made at one point in Reboot Camp that, quote, it's more important to be happy than to be right, which also seems particularly American culturally. Any thoughts about that? That's been my mantra for years. I'm married now my second time, and I've learned this time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's my credo for my marriage. I'd much rather be happy than be right. So uh, I don't like to win battles and lose wars anymore the way I did in the past. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have the need to be right the way I did as a younger man. And what was it like growing up with your father, screen legend Ed Begley? You know, it was, it was kind of good in, in many ways. He had the, uh, a certain amount of, I, don't, I wouldn't call it job security as an actor because you never really have that, but he was a working actor, but he was never a big star. He won an Academy Award and got a fair amount of renown for that. He was a character actor that, that did well. So we had a very comfortable little two-bedroom home, a small home in Van Nuys. And then he had the luxury of having another home out in Long Island for when he did Broadway work. So we'd go back and forth between the two homes when I was a young man. And it was kind of an idyllic way to grow up in the San Fernando Valley, which was a lovely place for a person to grow up and also out in Long Island. So I was very lucky. I didn't know it at the time, of course. I thought, you know, I was being shortchanged on any number of fronts. That's what kids think. I don't have enough time with my dad. The truth is he gave us a lot of time when he wasn't working. We took trips cross-country together, went to, you know, Disneyland and places, the beach and the pool. And, you know, uh, he was a good father and a good man and a wonderful, wonderful actor. And did his acclaimed performances in 12 Angry Men, Sweet Bird of Youth, and Inherit the Wind inspire you to become an actor, along with uh, his running away as a kid to join the circus and carnivals? Yeah, he definitely inspired me to be an actor. I think if my dad were a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. <laughs> I just wanted to do what my dad did. He was an actor and from the earliest age. What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I'd say, I want to be an actor. You know, what do you want to be? I want to be a comedian because my dad was also very funny. Mm. So I wanted to do what he did, and I'm convinced that was the major influence that led me in that direction. And what do you think about when you see his films compared to, I mean, the way they were made in those days, compared to a lot of the questionable films coming out now? You know, I got to see a lot of old Hollywood and then things make the transition. You know, there's a wonderful book called uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and it's about that change in film, the way films are made, the way films are produced and distributed and everything in the creative process, the way it changed from the old studio system. Um, so I got to see both worlds. And technically, it was just technically... You know, you needed these huge lights and huge cameras and everything was very big and kind of complex. And then things got smaller and better in many ways. And so uh, I got to see that transition. And it was, it's been a very exciting change. And what led you or what lured you into Better Call Saul? Oh, that was easy. You know, Vince <laughs> Gilligan, I'm such a fan of Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould. When I heard they were doing that show, you know, I auditioned for the part, and they were very wise to cast somebody approximately twice as talented as me, perhaps perhaps more than that, Michael McKean to play the brother. But Vince Gilligan is such a man of integrity and a man of his word. He said, I'm going to find something for you that's going to be a part for you. I said, Vince, you don't have to. I was grateful to just read these wonderful words that you wrote, and we'll work together at some point in our lives. Very quickly, I think it was like the second season, he had a part for me, you know, uh, playing a lawyer, you know, uh, Jimmy McGill's boss. And uh, I, I just loved working with him and everybody creatively on the show. It's an extraordinary show, as with Breaking Bad. Mm. You know, Brian Cranston is a dear friend of mine, so I got hooked on that show and hoped that, that Vince would do another show and Peter would do another show afterwards. And Bob Odenkirk, the great Bob, and they did, and boy, did they do a good job. Mm. And is there anything else you're up to right now or will be up to? I'm probably going to do a few more episodes of this wonderful show called Young Sheldon, you know, kind of the prequel to uh, Big Bang Theory, mm -hmm. and I love working on that, and uh, I, yeah, I've got some episodes of that upcoming, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, you've been active in the protests against the Keystone XL Pipeline 
What can you say about that? You know, I, I've been promoting conservation for quite a while. I certainly support the indigenous people who want that land protected and the, the threat of pollution there on their land and for all citizens, indigenous people or not, for the damage that might happen with, with those kinds of pipelines. I think we need to move in another direction. It's something I promoted starting in 1970. And my angle on it, if you will, is to promote, you know, using a lot less energy and in some cases eliminating, you know, old sources of energy. I think we can get by without coal and I think we can get away from crude oil and natural gas and fracking. And the solution to that is now getting cheaper and cheaper. As you probably know, the price of wind and solar is down a lot. The price of battery storage is down a lot. So there are alternatives. And my contribution to the protest for the pipeline was to not get in the plane and go there, you know, and to save the fuel rather than use the fuel. Again, I applaud the people that did go, whatever means they used to get there. But I've promoted conservation for years, and that's one pillar in the structure we must make to to stop this kind of pollution. One is conservation, two is good legislation, and three is corporate responsibility. With those three things, you can really accomplish things, as we did with the air in L.A. When I started in 1970, we had horrible choking smog, and now these many years later, we have four times the cars, millions more people, but a fraction of the smog. That's because we had good legislation, corporate responsibility, and personal action that got us there. And speaking of environmental issues out there in L.A., how have you met the challenges of the pandemic and also the fires? And what are your thoughts about that? You know, uh, I think Mother Nature bats last. I think uh, we have to listen to what we're seeing and feeling and, and having to endure now with the fires. And we've always had fires. That's something, you know, over geological time that's happened. Fires occur naturally with lightning and what have you. But fires just burned and they would be part of the rejuvenation process for a forest and what have you, many other kinds of, you know, scrub land and what have you and chaparral and different kinds of lands would endure a fire. But now we have people living in the midst of that. You have to protect those homes. I'm not suggesting otherwise homes and businesses in the path of a fire, but you can't just let a fire burn the way you naturally would. But we need to do that in places where we can to let not to use fire suppression as much, but we need to protect what lands we can. We just need all that, all those trees and forests. They, they are, you know, part of the lungs of the planet in the, in the Brazilian rainforest and elsewhere in our own, you know, forests throughout the United States. We need to save as much of that forested land as we possibly can. And there's a way to do that. We just have to be smarter about, uh, you know, fire suppression and many other things. So we don't we don't lose our forests from these big hot fires, but they're occurring more often and in uh, much bigger, uh, more often uh, these fires occur because of uh, climate change. And, uh, and I think that's something we need to reckon with. And how have you been dealing personally with surviving the lockdown? You know, there's people out there with real hardship vast majority of people going through a very difficult time. I'm not one of them. You know, I'm very lucky to have worked 53 years in a business that's been very good to me. So I'm, I'm fine here. I have no problems staying home and getting food out of my vegetable garden. And, you know, I have a 10,000 gallon rainwater tank. I have plenty of emergency water on hand and I have a nine kilowatt photovoltaic system, nine kilowatts of solar electric. So I'm, I'm fine here. I don't have the challenges most people face. Most people are, you know, living very differently than that. They live in an apartment. They live in a place where they can't have solar, can't have a vegetable garden. But uh, I, I, I just, I think we need to help everybody that needs help at this point, reach out our hands and have some, you know, assistance, state and federal assistance for people who need help. But uh, I've been very lucky and, and I'm, I'm just staying in for now and we will weather this together if we, if we help each other. And are you going to be making any appearances in connection with the Austin Film Festival? Yeah, whatever David wants me to do, I want to help him out because he's a good friend and it's a lovely film. Okay. And why should listeners see Reboot Camp? It's a very entertaining movie, and it speaks to the larger question of putting your faith in 
others in this kind of a cult setting, a group setting like this, uh, you know, somebody might have questionable ethics and integrity. So I think there's a uh, an important subtext there, but on the surface, it's, a, it's an enter- entertaining movie. It's a very funny film, so I would I would uh, recommend it for a lovely bit of entertainment. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ed Begley Jr., for calling into our show. Thank you for having me, Prairie. I appreciate that. Okay, bye. Bye. And following the Austin Film Festival, Reboot Camp will head to online cinemas. Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. Listening to Arts Express and now in the Poetry Corner. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. It's always a treat when poet Connie Norgren shares some of her new poetry with us. Connie is the author of Tonight's Quiet, which won the 2013 Bright Hill Press Poetry Book Award. And she's also the author of Same Boat and Falling Again. She's long talked about how domestic life is entwined with politics and nature. But in this time of COVID especially, her poems take on even greater urgency. In these new poems, she grapples with the question, what kind of response can poetry give in such a time of crisis? Like the Holocaust-era poet Paul Ceylon, who she references in one of her poems, Ceylon's parents were rounded up and put into labor camps, Connie Norgren asks, just what can words accomplish in a time like this? With melancholy, hope, mystery, and insight, Connie presents our lives as lived today. And now, some new poems by Connie Norgren, read by myself. Crossing Here, sleep like no sleep, Night of crazy shadows, or the blinding day. Now, the rocking of the rubber boat, Others' arms and legs, with no place, and water coming in. Here you are, everyone, all with that great thirst. Who still has shoes or her own soul? Reading Ceylon in a quiet place, Ceylon's words on the page and the room darkens, the murmuring voices at this cafe now stiff reeds and a wind. His mother spoke poems. She was his singer. In one night gone and the door sealed. The still tea in the cup. Many worlds past and to come. Days and nights sobbing in the wan peace afterwards. Eden for no reason at all. It comes, and then it is not. Apocalypse, real and imagined. Shouts and the storm looming or already thick around you. Water swirling, heaviness you can't lift off. Falling, fire. Carrying. Brown handbag. A wallet fat with history, 
documents rubbed thin. A few soft dollars, envelope with the address. Card after card for the check on you clerks. Three lifesavers held by their tin foil. Curve and silk feel of a spool of thread. Snapped in half emery board. And what else? The old lipstick. Rolled up tube of hand cream. What else? What else? That young man, rooting. Backpack knobby with skateboard parts. Socks and rolled hoodie. An extra wheel. Tape and the crushed box of gauze. Thin sharpie. Sketchbook almost used up. ID just readable. So much past. Any of it useful? Any? Gathering. A brought turmeric and a warning. B a whole library on fire, then reborn. C despair. E the ecstasy of having a happy child. F a contented self and question after question about the astonishing world. G eyes that see everything. And F said her glasses see darkly, or it's the fog, the smoke of everyday life, or evening coming. It is December. D was quiet as usual, except for that one time. Going home, A heard a man whistling for a whole block, and B, a loud phone talker who said into it, you can believe anything you want. With his mouth twisted, C walked side by side for a while with a woman carrying a canvas, tall as herself, painted yellow. She said she could handle it. America Again, people on the street Shouting witnesses pacing, shining with sweat. The poem appears in heavy gear, clanking, Trained in neck restraint, Trained target by target, deaf and blind. I'm claustrophobic. The poem doesn't stop. Summer to summer to summer, endless. The poem is guns a knee. I'll look you eye to eye. The poem is a life. The poem is ocean wide. All those waves, what is beneath? The poem has an ambulance turning one corner, another, with no urgency, none. Dear Spring, now loud brag, now words like spider silk, now the roar of quake and flood and fire, now the petals damp with living, now the lies even bigger lying on those that came before, now the catkins swaying from the high branches. Now the procession, the palms strewn over the dust. Now the hacked tree limb. Now the branches shadow, delicate on rock, the petals, the leaves, so many. Now the discontent, the rising up, the breaches of the peace, the arms holding the baby closer. Oh, the baby's face over the shoulder. Oh, the crowd 
that is growing. You've been listening to six new poems by Connie Norgren. Connie is the author of Tonight's Quiet, published by Bright Hill Press, and Same Boat and Falling Again, both published by Five Spice Press. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And coming up next on Arts Express, Radium Girls, about the tragic fate and valiant struggle against the corporation that poisoned these factory workers with the radium they were subjected to handling at their workstations. Filmmaker Lydia Pilcher is on the line to the show to delve into, really, a much larger socio-political landscape back then, in the 1920s, a century ago. Quote, the journey, and to set the stage of the world that the Radium Girls existed in, we brought in the stories of Sacco and Vanzetti and the Tulsa race riots, and also a story about capitalism without regulation. This brave filmmaker has placed the left at the time front and center in this film, released right now with the resurgence of neo-McCarthyism. First, some scenes from Radium Girls, then director Lydia Pilcher, talking about that mystery character Etta played by Susan Hayward, a political filmmaker herself and a communist back then, who gets it about Hollywood in contrast to the radium girl played by Joey King who doesn't, and who turns up from the Tulsa massacre, along with Pilcher's memories of directing the late Mary Tyler Moore in a movie. as recharging electric batteries. Did you know that all the way from the mines of Paradox Valley, Colorado, comes a miracle elixir of the 20th century? Radium. Good for what else, ladies? Good for what else? Doctors are only using it to cure such things as arthritis and cancer. Some call it liquid sunshine. There's a new line of beauty products guaranteed to make your skin glow. Hats off to Marie Curie for discovering this most beneficial of elements. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen. Never be lost in the dark again. Welcome to the modern age. Watch me. Easy enough? You are paid one cent per dial. The best girls average 200 a day. Welcome to American Radium. Thank you. Hey, it's slower, but there's no aftertaste if you don't like it. What's your average? 40. Hi. Exactly. Are your nails glowing? <laughs> uh, I'm Bessie. Edda. Bessie. Edda is one of the best camera operators this side of the Mississippi. She sure is. Do you shoot motion pictures? 
have um, you seen Valentino's latest? Well, I, I shoot real life. If I could just live inside one of his films, I would. Those films are made to distract people from what's going on right in front of them. What are we talking about here? Cinema. Hollywood pushing propaganda. Wanna go outside? Yeah. Sure. Lovely to meet you, Thomas Ella. Yes. Wait. Who is she? This year, I wanted to leave the smog to be discovered and go to Hollywood. Never to be seen again. <laughs> Never to be seen again. But instead, I saw America for the first time. I saw evil. But you all taught me so much. That's right. I am going to make American Radium pay for what they've done. Tell them that's right. Yeah. 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 Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you. Sounds good. Okay. Why was it important to you to bring this buried history to life, Radium Girls? And as director and writer of your first dramatic feature film? Well, let me, let me first of all say that Jenny Moeller and Brittany Shaw are the writers of the film, and then and Jenny and I co-directed the film. But it was, a, it was something that I had been long kind of searching for as a project to bring into my company, Cinemosaic. I've been a longtime environmental activist, and I have been wanting to find a story that really used my career to sort of amplify issues and themes that I you know, feel deeply about. And when I read Jenny and Brittany's screenplay, I was totally enchanted by the idea of these two sisters um, in this particular time period who were working in a factory, but they were dreaming of, you know, very different places in the world, but very far from New Jersey where they lived. I mean, one wanted to go to Hollywood and become a star, and the other one dreamed of archaeological digs in Egypt. And it was just an amazing place to come in from a very female storytelling point of view to tell the story of the Radium Girls. Now, a significant part of this film, besides the terrible reality on and off screen of these women as victims, is how they become radicalized, politically conscious, and fight back against the corporation. What did that mean to you to portray their struggle as well as their tragedy? Well, I think the interesting part of the story is, is the journey. And we, one of the things we were interested in doing was to set a stage of the world that the Radium Girls existed in. So we brought um, some of the sort of the stories of, like Sacco and Vanzetti and the Tulsa race riots. And um, we have, there's Mount Rushmore, which has become a story today. <laughs> but um, it was interesting to just give the audience a little bit of a, of a sense of what else was happening in the world in the context of these girls in a factory, which was you know, emblematic of rising industry in America without any regulation, um, governments and Historians were getting concerned, consumer advocates were getting concerned, and the Radium Girls story really brought this, you know, the focus to this particular um, dire issue in America at that time. And please talk about, as well, the key inclusion, however brief, of Susan Hayward as Edda, the communist filmmaker who gets it about Hollywood and was a victim herself of the Tulsa race massacre that you include. I didn't know they could do that. They can do anything they want. That's why we have to make sure that we capture us out of this. Yeah. Where did you learn to use a camera? My family owned a photo studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
grew up with it. Why do you leave Oklahoma? Um, about six and a half years ago. The police and all the deputies, they burnt down my whole neighborhood. They said a black boy attacked a white girl. Can't the government do something? Great warplanes flew overhead, dropping firebombs. What do you mean? It was the government, Bess. More than a thousand of our homes destroyed. Why is there so much wrong in the world that no one knows about? It's easier to believe stories that make us feel safe. I don't feel very safe right now. What if no one believes us? What if they believe American Radium? Don't give them a choice. footage to create a more of a sense of scope on a you know on a film that was very much an independent film and we created a character named Etta who was part of a group of young communists on the east coast and was very much involved in a number of different issues including racial injustice including um, you know these things that were happening at the stock exchange in New York City and she had a camera and we we designed her as a, as a character who came from Tulsa and brought that perspective. So when she and Bessie are arrested at a New Year's Eve party, and Etta, frankly, is arrested because she is with Bessie, and Bessie has been under the watch of the police for a while, um, the conversation that they have in the cell is something that is a real pivotal point in Bessie's consciousness about about the bigger world. It just wasn't that big to her until she sort of really started to raise her voice and her voice started creating a threat to the status quo. And this was something that she was having to sort of step into bigger shoes than she had ever imagined and was really making sense of it all. And speaking of which, now in this period, with the we see the resurgence of a neo of a neo McCarthyism. You're brave as well as a filmmaker. You don't refrain from including the political left and significance of the time, the communist movement. Why was that essential to you to include? Well, I think. Listen, I think throughout our history, there have been voices from from different you know ends of a political spectrum and all the voices in between. And that is something that is important because it's, you know, different voices are challenging a status quo. And that's, those are the voices that sort of encourage you to think about things differently than you might um, otherwise. So I think, I think it's, I think it's important to represent all, all spectrums of the, of the political voice, um, which is also why, you know, we have the, we have the young man outside the courthouse saying, you know, don't shut the factory down. My sister needs that job. You know, it's, you know, there, you, you, you try to sort of portray what many perspectives are so that the audience can decide where they would reside in that, in that discussion. Now, on another note, you directed Mary Tyler Moore in the documentary Reno Finds Her Mom about a woman looking for her birth mother. What can you say about directing her in a movie? And what are your memories of Mary Tyler Moore? Well, I, I'll tell you the thing that I remember the most was just her immediate reaction when Reno and I asked her to play Reno's mother, her fantasy mother, in these interstitial bits of the documentary. But I remember Mary, we asked her to do it, and she said, look, all my life, all I've wanted to be was a star, and now all I want to do is do work that means something. 
And it was so, you know, two, two, you know, two young people trying to sort of put alternative voices out in the world. It was a very um, heartfelt, you know, encouragement to us. And she, you know, she was terrific. She just, she just really was interested in the story for what it was and wanted to be a part of it. And what can you say about your project and development and what led you to it? Music is the Weapon about Nigerian musician and political activist Fela Kuti. Yes, that's, um, you know, I spent a lot of years of my career as a producer, and this is one of the producing projects that I've had for probably over 10 years at this point. Um, Melina Matsukas is attached to direct this project, and it's something that, you know, I'm very excited about making because um, I think Fela um, is someone who inspired people to stand up and raise their voices through music, hence the title, Music is the Weapon. And it's an important story that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are ready to see. And of the many, many films you've been involved in, what would you say are any common themes or threads among them or inspirations? Well, I've worked a lot internationally. I Early on, I developed a relationship with Mira Nair, who um, has been an important, you know, filmmaker and partner and, and, you know, artistic influence in my life. But I've also worked um, with many other independent directors, and I definitely will say that I'm led by female storytelling, but I also feel very driven by, you know, the human human nature and the human condition and um, really, you know, stories that encourage you to uh, take a journey in someone else's um, eyes, you know, to really walk in their shoes and feel what it's like to be them in a way that might impact the way you feel about your own life differently. And about Radium Girls, what do you feel a film about this historical moment in the past says to the present time? Well, I think that we're, I think that we're in a in a time when, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, we're talking about a, a, a discovery of a deadly disease in 1921, and we're all facing a different deadly disease in 2020. And I think that the one of the things that the pandemic has given us for everything that it has taken away is is the time and the space to really think about what is important to us and what is important for us to spend our time doing and what really matters, you know, what is our purpose. All of these questions, I think, are really important in, a, in this kind of critical, critical moment that we're in right now in the world. So I think it's, I think it's, yeah, I think there's some interesting parallels between the story and the fact that, you know, there was a coming together um, at a higher level around the Radium Girls and that that, that did bring about some long-term change um, in, in terms of science and industrial regulation. So we have, to, we have to sort of think about where our power resides in this time that we're living in right now, where it feels, I think we all feel a bit helpless being so socially distanced at a time that we need to come together. But we have, you know, we have had time to think about it. So Hopefully, we will um, have a positive result for that come November. And how did that strike you when you first saw that your film was coming out quite coincidentally with the pandemic? Well, we originally had been planning to release the film in the spring before the pandemic. Yeah, so I we, remember we actually, that. Yeah. The, the trailers were playing in theaters all over the country, and then we were and we were due to open April third. We shut down the week before that because of um, because of the lockdowns and people needing to be quarantined. And so we've had this time of reflection where we, um, you know, we, we struggle with, you know, what what this all means. What does the future means? When will life ever be the same again? But we, you know, got to a point this summer where we felt like our story actually is a needed story right now and looking to history for lessons about how we can understand sort of our collective past and our part in that and how we can change the narrative of our future. It felt very relevant. So I, 
think it's an important time for us to get the film out there. I hope it is. Sometimes you only understand these things in retrospect, but that's, that's what's driving us right now. Yeah. Okay, I have one final question. Why is it important to you that our listeners not only see Radium Girls, but remember these women? It's important because, you know, these were women who were very, you know, very thoughtful. They had very strong voices. They were able to express themselves. And yet there were things about their characters that are so utterly female and emotional. And I think it's great to see that, you know, we can be transformational leaders. We don't, you know, we can create our own leadership style and do things our way. It's not, it's not an either or. And I think that we should hold on to everything inside ourselves that creates meaning and beauty and take that and, you know, sort of bring it out to the world in the best way possible. And I, I hope that that's, you know, what people can take away from Radium Girls. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lydia, for calling into our show. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. And Radium Girls is out now from Juno Films. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me